This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Hello and welcome to Plato's Cave, a Triple R film uh, criticism show and podcast. (laughs) Can I do that again? Can we get a second take? Uh, Start again. (laughs) Hello and welcome to Plato's Cave, a Triple R film criticism show and podcast. That was for the podcast. (laughs) I am the stuttering Paul Anthony Nelson, and in the cave tonight, I am joined by Emma Westwood. Hello. Hello, Paul Anthony Nelson. And Sally Christie. Hello. Hello, Paul Anthony Nelson. We sound exactly the same. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. Just interchangeable. Um, (laughs) Not true. Uh, On tonight's show, we will join Penelope Cruz and Javier Bardem as their past comes back to bite them in the worst way possible in the new film from Asghar Fahadi, Everybody Knows. We'll also wade through the swamps of misery and one seriously messed up family dynamic with the Australian indie Reflections in the Dust. But first... Let's all grab a tea and get cosy as we discuss Lars von Trier's latest souffle of light entertainment, The House That Jack Built. In the newest film by Danish provocateur Lars von Trier, Jack, played by Matt Dillon, is a failed architect, keen engineer and, depending on your metric for success, a very successful serial killer who has spent the last 12 years of his life over the 1970s and 80s creating what he feels is his masterpiece, which just happens to involve murdering scores of people. Jack speaks to us via a voiceover where he takes us through the minutiae of five incidents, the murders Jack feels were most foundational to the development of his homicidal process. We see him hailed down by a belligerent woman with car trouble, played by Uma Thurman, forcing himself into the home of a recently bereaved woman, played by Von Trier favourite Siobhan Fellenhogan, going on a, a hunting trip with a mother, played by Sophie Grabol from the Danish TV show The Killing, and her two young sons, Grumpy and George, <laughs> shacking up with a woman he derisively calls Simple, played by Riley Keough, and attempting to kill five men with one bullet before doing some advanced sculptural work. These ghoulish vignettes are interspersed with philosophical, ethical and artistic conversations and confessions with a mysterious man named Verge, played by the recently dearly departed Bruno Garns, whose true nature is only revealed late in the film. Sally, did you find Jack's house spacious, bright and a renter's delight? Or a fixer-upper ready to renovate or detonate? Paul, I've been working on this one all week, but I'm giving this film a really big Lars von Cheer. Yeah! <laughs> That's what I like to hear. Boom! <laughs> um, that, that deserves a golf clap. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I, so I have seen this film twice now and I must say the second time that I watched it, I enjoyed it a lot more. I am a fan of Lars von Trier and I was very, very much looking forward to this film. Um, there were things that took away from it the first time that I saw it, which was in the um, – I think it was at Monsterfest back in November – and, yeah, upon rewatching this, I got a lot more from it. Uh, is everything that I wanted it to be. It was exceptionally violent. It <laughs> Boy, is it. Yeah, and I, I love violent films. I do. It's just one of my things that I like in cinema. doesn't make me a bad person. I just like them. And I'm judging you, Sally. You're not. I know that you're not. Because <laughs> you're so averse to violent cinema, Emma. <laughs> There are often we see these films where people are, you know, walking out of cinemas and you go, what was that about? With this, I can definitely see what that was about. And I really enjoyed that. I really enjoyed that it was really confrontational, that it was over the top, 
that it was Lars von Trier absolutely taking the piss out of himself. Um, yeah, like I said, the first time there... It was particularly, I'm not going to give anything away, the ending that took away from the rest of the film for me, but mm. I, I did go back and enjoy it much more the, the final time. The final 20 minutes. The final 20 minutes. When you say the ending, it's that's a very... It's a long ending. Mm. It is 20 minutes. I decided to take note. My, I'm the same as Sally. I watched it twice. Um, I don't think I feel quite the same way as Sally about it. Uh, I hoped for... I feel that there's a good movie in, in here and... I, and um, and Lars overcooked it, basically. Lars went full Lars. <laughs> and who is anyone to tell Lars not to? But I have a, a kind of conflicted relationship with his work, just to be really open. I think that I don't like it, and then I really love stuff. Something like Melancholia I thought was just pure genius. Even Nymphomaniac Parts 1 and 2, uh, I went to the cinema and I watched them as parts one and two with an intermission and I thought they were sensational except right at the end that was the only thing I had yeah, a problem the, with the that the ending um, of Nymphomaniac for me really the same you had the same thing yeah. yes. oh my but god you know I, think- I was talking to Alexandra Helen Nicholas who was you know on Plato's Cave for a very long time she's incredible and she said that she thought Lars von Trier was like an annoying ex-boyfriend <laughs> I don't know who Alex has dated because that's <laughs> yeah. really scary. Yeah. But um, I think that he was trying to do something similar to Nymphomaniac actually here, mm. to be totally honest. So in some ways this is a short film for him. It went for about two hours, 20 minutes, I guess. Yeah, two and a half. Two, two and a half, two and a half yeah. yeah. Uh, in because he, in Nymphomaniac he has that uh, psychiatrist who is sort of like, you know, um, that she talks to all the way through it. And it's the same thing. Bruno Gans plays that role in this film. But I felt all of that stuff and all of the little the little vignettes or the little moments in between the actual um, direct narrative was just, just too much. He was trying to create some sort of depth that just wasn't there. He, he really mined this idea, for example, of a serial killer being obsessive-compulsing compulsive revelation not i mean it was just i felt that it was more interesting seeing it played out in the comedy of the scene where matt dylan as jack keeps on having to go back because he thinks he's left blood under the (laughs) and this film without and and, you know bruno gans i'm so sorry to say this bruno and he can't hear me maybe he can i don't know he's an angel yeah Yeah, he's he's right behind you (gasps) Oh, there's, oh, God, he's breathing on my neck. Uh, he's <laughs> His voice was really annoying. I, there was something about the... He felt like Yoda or something through this whole film and, and I found it really distracting. <laughs> but um, the actual... I think that Lars felt like he had to do something else. I love, love that I call him Lars, like an ex-boyfriend, <laughs> that he had to do something more, but he didn't need to. It was just all there in the story. Maybe he felt like he had to dilute it a little bit because it was too violent, but I don't think that was necessary because there was a lot of humour and also his victims were very unlikable. I was quite happy for him to shoot those right-wing children, for example. <laughs> so Spoilers. that was the... Yeah, gee, that was bad, wasn't it? No. Um, yeah. 
that was my problem with it. I could see a cut in there mm. that would have been excellent, see, but I, it wasn't there. I think that all of his use of still images and everything in between his, um, what did it, the incidents, Mr Sophistication's incidents, <laughs> I, I really like them and I like them so much more the second time I watched them. I, I thought his use of still images in this was really beautiful. Really, really liked it. So, I uh, the first time I I saw this, I uh, I came out of it, and it's I normally have a rating for a film right after I leave. Like a, a right after I leave a film, I know what I'm going to give it out of five stars, and generally that might alter by half a star, except in rare cases. This is a film I couldn't rate for about two days. Mm-hmm. I literally did not know whether it was brilliant or terrible, and I I love Lars von Trier. Like I'm a massive fan. Um, and I think he's made a lot of modern classics and I'm really into what he kind of does as a filmmaker. And after a couple of days, I considered it and I started to think, you know what? No, it's more on the brilliant side. And I think in honest to goodness, and it's funny because I didn't feel this about Nymphomaniac, but it's funny you mentioned it, Emma, because I've heard a lot of people make this comparison between the two films that they're kind of doing the same thing. I didn't feel it with Nymphomaniac, but this, I think this is Lars von Trier's eight and a half. Yeah, every filmmaker does oh, a yeah, Fellini eight and a half. Mean. Does that sort of overview of their career and their statement on art and their statement on oh, themselves. this is one hundred percent Lars von Trier's eight and a half in that sense like, for sure. The entire thing. And what other filmmaker would compare himself to a serial killer? Yeah. And yeah. the whole thing is about Jack's artistic process and you know working working with hardly anything. You know he's working with a jack and a car and. Bashing even, even in to the, the face point and, where it's very, very laughable, where he's yes. like, all oh, these women are annoying, you know, <laughs> like it's just, it's very, he is 100% taking the piss out of himself and, you know, the the Third Reich imagery that we yes. have just yeah. coming through this. He, it, uses, he, yeah. he uses comedy more in this than if he was, well, he's done an outright comedy before mm. and he uses comedy more in this than um, than any other film, which I think that he uses to great a great effect. Yes. I will I will definitely give him that. But I wouldn't like, I don't like to think of this as his eight and a half because I think he's done better. Because it's the whole thing is that he's like, he's totally going through, like there's debates in this movie about the, you know, the, the role of art and creation, the nature of art and creation, the responsibility of art he even like directly references his own work. There's <laughs> like I know, scenes when, from his I, own when film. When I first saw that, I was like, I don't know how to feel about this. With <laughs> that, that, that particular stuff, we we see a lot of Lars's previous films. I'm calling him Lars now too. Yeah. Like he's my ex-boyfriend. <laughs> well. You went sloppy um, seconds. Yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, I was like, I don't, is this just totally too? Wanky, I don't know, but, but I, like, I, I'm with you, Paul. I loved it. Like, I I think this film is excellent. Yeah, I just really, really vibed on it, and uh, like the fact. I mean, by the time by the end, Jack is literally directing. He's literally looking through a lens and going, "Nope, over the you know, the lens of the shot." You know, the gun. Yeah, and the, yeah <laughs> not to spoil anything, but yeah, he's he's literally directing and sculpting and building, and and um and there's also there's a bit of an acknowledgement. I think I'm here. Like, this is the weird thing. Like, I think often Lars's sincerity is questioned by people. And I I always think he's incredibly sincere. I think he's very insincere in interviews. I think it's part of part of the, the way he copes. I don't think he's particularly comfortable with interviews. <laughs> and so he cracks weird jokes about him being a Nazi and, and being quite insincere about things and calling himself the greatest director on earth. But I think his <laughs> films are actually incredibly sincere. And 
And, you know, it's it's the reason I always insist he's not a misogynist. I think he is absolutely dialed into, you know, the world of men has repeatedly destroyed women over and over time, and I depict that. And his sympathy is always with the woman in question, even when she's being brutalised. And... In this film, there's actually there's a little bit of an admission I feel in some of the in some of the stories that he's been really hard on some of his actors, like on on some of the women he's worked with. Yeah, I felt there was one scene in particular that what you're saying, where he's often you know told that he's a misogynist. That we see this over and over again. There's one big big scene where there's a huge comment on that and. The first time that I watched this film, I was like, oh, okay, I don't know how to feel about this. But there, I definitely think this warrants a second viewing because I did come away yeah. from it feeling very, very different the second time I saw it. What did you both think of the end, though? I need to find find out of the comments yeah. at the end. Was there a comment? Was there? It just was a whole lot of wank to me. It, I, I like the film without the wank. That's what yeah. I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, I think it would have worked better without the ending. Let's, honestly let's say the metaphysical yep. aspects. Yeah, if the it, wank. <laughs> <laughs> if the wank had have been taken away, it would have been a tighter film. Yes. Yeah. But I, I was okay with the wank. I still, I still kind of dug it because it's kind of what you expect. Jack deserves, but but at the same time, it's like, yeah, I think without it, would it have worked just as well? Probably, but. I don't. It didn't detract from my. I must admit, some it it throws you for a loop when you're watching it. You're kind of like, I don't <laughs> know what's happening here, but it it. But eventually, I kind of grew into it. But yeah, I just felt like it was. It, it's it's a five course banquet of a film. Like mm. it just felt like about. And it, it's interesting because he originally planned it. I didn't remember this until afterwards, but. He originally planned this to be a TV series. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, okay. really? And that's so interesting. That's why I, it, it was going like... to pick this up as a TV <laughs> series. <laughs> Zendropa Networks. <laughs> I.e., he's paying for it. Yes. Um, yes but well, that... the kingdom was really interesting. You know, exactly. that was very dark. So and hugely well, influential. Mm. Surprise, surprise! It was dark. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't sound like last. <laughs> But yeah, it just I see I, Paul dated him as well. We're all calling him. Last. Yeah. <laughs> he's he's he'll always be my last. Uh, but yeah, I just really uh, thought this was a, a a really intriguing statement. And I'm a sucker for filmmakers eight and a half. Like I love all that jazz. I love Stardust Memories. I love any filmmakers riff on eight and a half. So this is Lars's. I am completely down with it. It is a wild, metaphorical, and metaphysical ride, and I think it, it is kind of a major work. Yeah, I think that too. Yeah, I think it's going to be a very big one in his canon. I don't feel quite the same <laughs> way. <laughs> well, history will prove uh, one way or the other. Uh, <laughs> the house that Jack built is screening now at all good independent cinemas. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 RRR in Melbourne, Australia. So everybody knows that Asghar Fahadi makes nail-biting social thrillers laced with simmering class tensions, but can his style effortlessly switch from Iran to Spain? Let's find out. After opening with shots of a small Spanish town, the stage is set as we see someone's hands cutting out newspaper articles all about a kidnapped girl. Then we meet Laura, played by Penelope Cruz, and her two children, teenage daughter Irene and her young son. Uh, Travelling from their home in Buenos Aires on a video call with Laura's husband Alejandro, played by Ricardo Durin, who has had to remain home for work. 
Laura's revisiting her hometown outside Madrid for her younger sister's wedding, where she reunites with her well-off family and her old friend Paco, Javier Bardem, who runs a vineyard with his wife. The wedding is a joyous occasion. Irene flirts with a local boy. Laura and Paco share a few laughs, all while navigating more than a little unresolved sexual tension from a long-ago relationship. However, this being an Asgard for Hardy film, all this happy family stuff can't last, and an event occurs which soon sends Laura, Paco, Alejandro, Laura's family and the townspeople at large into a tailspin. As long-buried uh, secrets are revealed, long-standing grudges come to the fore, and those simmering class tensions I mentioned earlier all come to a boil. Emma, did you find this social realist thriller a riveting cruise, or did you find it merely <laughs> bad embasement? <laughs> oh, no! I'm sorry. It's the best oh, I could do. Oh, my God. I think I have to pretend that didn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> I love Asghar Fahadi's films. I'll say that straight away. I'm getting to feel, though, that I'm getting into his groove. I know what his shtick is, you know, and um, he is playing it out here in Everybody Knows If um, uh, A Separation. Um, About Ali. About Ali and The Salesman. And The Mozart. Past as well. And The Past. I haven't seen The Past. Um, I haven't seen The Past. <laughs> Do you like that? This, uh, I, I, I liked his, I felt that he did really bring um, a cultural shift to this. It felt incredibly Spanish. Maybe too much Spanish. <laughs> he really went over the top to give this sense of um, zest for life in this village life and um and beautiful people, my God, this was just a, you know, a gorgeous people fest. And to watch Javier being good-looking Javier, not No Country for Old Men Javier, and his... It was unsettling, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, I felt like this was a Vicky Cristina Barcelona reunion, you mm. know, with um, Penelope, which who is his um, real-life wife. So, obviously, they have some interesting chemistry, and especially in this film because they... They don't play partners, but they play former partners in it, which is the the important aspect. Which I thought was a really smart casting move. Yes, yes, Doing I did. They've already got that history, and we all know about that, mm. you know, the real-life history, and so the characters having this is... A little meta stuff going mm. on. Uh, he, 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 what what Asghar Fahadi likes to do, and this is very much um, prevalent in his films, is it's not about the questioning of the female characters. All his female characters seem very resolute. They know their answers. They know what they have in their mind, what they want to do. It's always around the questioning of masculinity especially in in regards to the family, uh, being a husband, being a father, um, and that is once again played out here. It's top-notch. I felt it was top-notch, but there was something in the way that this all resolved that didn't seem as outstanding as his other films. He didn't end on the note that left me going, wow, for example. But... I love the experience of it and I love the unpacking of it. And he, I like the way that he creates what I would call a social realist thriller. This is not a 90s thriller in the way that Greta was and that Sally enjoys. 
Sally did not enjoy Greta, though. Yeah, I'm glad you were clear about that. <laughs> I just need to clarify that. But Greta, for example, was uh, you, which we talked about last week, was very much, um, you know, a carbon copy of a, a 90s thriller, whereas this, yeah, social realist thriller. I think you're right. It's, it's, it's funny because um, Jordan Peele calls his films social thrillers, and I think there's, there's, I mean, they're more horror films and they're more, you know, social commentary, whereas I think you're dead on. I think it's exactly what Asgard does is social realist thrillers. What did you think of this, Sal? Um, I went into this honestly not knowing anything about it. I watched it this morning. Um, I did very, very much enjoy this. I thought it was excellent. And all what, these beautiful people at the start, I, one thing in particular, I'm not saying that I'm, I'm loving them, but it was interesting to watch how these beautiful picturesque surroundings that reminded me of like Call Me By Your Name or something like that that was just absolutely gorgeous just disintegrate as the film went on Um, where we see Penelope Cruz, you know, looking gorgeous at this wedding and glamorous and then this kind of just disintegration as, you know... These and awful shows things the, that are happening. And it shows the 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 fractures of the family because at the start, when you see it, you think that everyone's just so perfect. Mm. Um, yet then all those cracks are revealed once it's put under pressure. Yeah, I, I did like the way that it examined that too. It was, I thought, the one thing what you were saying before, Emma, how the payoff wasn't that great. I thought that was very vis- visible from early in the film. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Oh, wow. Mm. Yes, I did. That was something um, I picked up on early. <laughs> oh, jeez. That was all over the place with to that. Me, no, um, so I, I've, I thought in that way it, it felt a little bit predictable, um, but I did essentially think that it was a great, entertaining, beautiful film, you know. Mm. I think uh, I love his films. Um, I think you're right, though, Em. I, I think he definitely has a shtick. Problem is I f- love that shtick. <laughs> That's okay. You're yeah, allowed. Yeah, and that's the thing. It's it's just I'm watching it like I watch a Hitchcock film now. It's like yeah. you know what you're going to get. You know you're going to get everybody's happy, everybody's family, and there's all this joie de vivre, and everybody's connected, and you get to meet everybody and see what the connections are, and if there are any, you know, the, a slight hint of you know long simmering kind of differences, and and but you know everything seems pretty happy and and balanced, and then all of a sudden there's the elevator drop. There's the moment when everything. You know, something happens to one of the family members and all of a sudden it's a race to figure out where they are or who did it or... And then... But he use, he always uses this as a venue to explore class. Because, mm. yeah, those... Like, particularly in this film, the, those wedding scenes, I felt, were contagiously joyous. Yeah. Mm. I was sitting there by myself in the cinema this morning watching this and just like, fuck, I want to be I there. Was by, I <laughs> yeah. was by myself in the cinema as well. I'd like to say this is a bit concerning. Can yeah. people please go and see this no, film? There 100%. Were, there yes. were other people in there. I just was... <laughs> Oh, okay. No, I was by myself, you know, belching and all that sort of stuff by myself, going, taking notes. The the joy that came through before, you know, the the big sort of fallout happens in this film was so contagious. It was, you know, it's not often when you watch a film that you're really feeling that joy. And I I did with this. I thought that was captured beautifully. And there's that whole thing with the wedding and all of a sudden the power goes out and it's like, we're going to turn the power on. And even going. still, that was just like, I know the generator? I was getting married and the power went out, I'd be like, oh, my God, this is the worst thing that could ever happen. <laughs> <laughs> but you don't have Javier Bardem at your exactly. wedding. And he is so beautiful here. Like, we forget, like, he's played, you know, so many villainous roles. We forget how, how much of a loving big bear of a man he can be as well. Mm. And he's so 
beautiful and joy and like the, the his earring is such a great touch I, I like that too I noticed the <laughs> so earring a lot good. I did I really <laughs> he's just you know he's got this thing he's like he's a little bit of a ladies man you know he's sitting there looking at you know girls in the balcony and all that sort of thing at the start <laughs> drinking with his friend even though he's married like he's just you know he's a bit of a lad and and I just absolutely adored his character in this yeah. and and then when everything starts to unfold and he's very much there for that and very much handling and you know but as sometimes kind of accused of this. And I I never kind of, uh, you know, he, I stuck by his character all the way. I just thought he was so beautiful. Um, uh, weird thing is you were saying about Penelope Cruz earlier. I think the the more um, the, the more she lost the facade of the made-up kind of, like, the better she began to look. I felt like mm. her, like, mm. dressed down was like, and it was almost like, um, my partner was sort of saying it was like it was like she was kind of growing into herself, mm. you know, and like becoming who she really was, and, and you know, away from all the secrets. Because that's the other thing too. A lot of this story hinges on secrets mm. that have been kept for many, many years, and um, and they're uh, the sort of threatening to erupt. Yeah, it's a nice. It's 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 a thread that's you know been pulled out a lot in European um, uh, narratives in this idea of. Um, small town village literally village uh, secrets and this mm. uh, uncovering of village secrets no one no one wants to reveal them and this film did play in in a modern setting and Penelope Cruz's character had um, relocated to Buenos Aires and was coming back to this little this little village outside Madrid uh, where her family were sort of like the the landed aristocracy, yes. shall we say, of this of this area, but they played up on that rust, rustic nature of the village and that really, you know, that warmth, the earthiness. But then they also incorporated what I like, and it seems to be a shift in filmmaking now where they use drone technology but now we're the the drone technology is revealed a lot more you know mm. once upon a time not that long ago it was all about the drone shots and how mm. we were all wowed by these drone shots now we were like yeah whatever i, I did shots. enjoy that they use drone shots as drone shots as drone we shots. were really aware of it but because, it was yeah we are all i think feeling a bit bored of drone yeah shots. It but it was, was this also yeah. suspected like it was also like oh, these guys must yeah. ha- might have something to do with this because yes. they're watching everything from overhead and, yeah. and they seem slightly sketchy and you're kind of like... Had a piercing, one of them well, had a piercing. <laughs> yes, as so, kids yeah. with piercings. <laughs> well, trust them. That's what I, I love the way this described, like the, the way they, at one point, they're like, let's ask the fruit pickers what they were doing. And it's interesting because the f- fruit pickers are clearly immigrants. Yes. But they never say the word immigrants. They never say, they never make reference to a race. They call them by, they're the we fruit could bring, pickers. We could set that in Australia, yeah. you realise. We've got the same sort of culture going here, which is interesting. You hear, I love there was a scene and he used audio to beautiful effect where um, it was the questioning of the fruit fruit pickers and you hear the snip, 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 Mm. snip behind of the, the, and it really created a sense at that stage we're trying to work out who is this, who who has created, who has committed this crime. So uh, that kind of foreboding was great. And of course the, the modern technology, the drone is the modern technology in this rustic setting that, 
you know, is a, th- a threat and of something of the other. Yes. You know, which is nice. I'm like, look, I'm like you, Paul. I think that I have no problems that he has a shtick. What I do like about him is he's able to do different things with his shtick. Yes. And I think that's the important thing. And none of the know. stories are the same. Like, they, they, like, there's a similar shape, but the story details are the same. The, the milieu, uh, the story details are different. The milieus are different. They're, they're, uh, I love the fact that he's kind of taking it to different countries. Like, I think, I haven't seen the past either, but that was set in France uh, with some Iranian uh, involvement. And then this is in Spain. I kind of want him, I'd love him to do one in America. I'd love him to do one in, in like, I'd I love to see I think it's a matter him. of time. Yeah, I think I, it will happen. I feel like this, after being put out by Universal, it will definitely be, he'll be moving to America. And so. once again, another um, Palm Dion nominee, I think. Yeah, he was, yeah. He was up for uh, a big award. And this was distributed by Universal. So he's got, you know, the big studio backing behind him now. So it's, yeah. Yeah, just a matter of time. We'll see his English language film. He's a Yorgos Lanthimos. It'll happen. Yeah, it's got to get there because he writes like a dramatist. You know, he's always struck me as like a playwright turned director, you know, mm. turned filmmaker. And he's it's got this beautiful and just the way he slowly turns the keys. Like he reminds me a lot of a, you know, in a lot of ways, he's like if Mike Lee... If you if you got Mike Lee and smashed him with Alfred Hitchcock and then had him grow up yes. in Iran, yeah, but- <laughs> you've got Asghar Fahadi. I, he's just I, I just really really adore his films, and I kind of it's that thing you forget how good he is, and then you sit down and watch one of his films, and you're like, oh, that's right, yeah, we're in completely safe hands. And this isn't a short film; I think it was two hours twenty. Yeah, two hours, two and a quarter. Yeah, and I didn't film. feel like it it no. um, dragged out or anything like that. It was um, really rollicked along. I, I read some reviews that talked about, oh, you have to be really fully engaged with his subject matter in order to stay with it. I thought that was pretty rough. Yeah, I, I felt that. It could have been maybe half an hour shorter, but I feel like that about a lot of films. So. <laughs> oh, you didn't about Lars von Trier. I did feel that that could be 20 minutes shorter. Did you? There yeah. you go. The end. It is See? a little... Sh- <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. House of Jack built is, is a little shaggily paced, but that's about my only criticism. And he uses Fame 90 a lot, but I don't want to say. It's a but good song, though. It's a good song. It is. You know, not quite as many times. Um, but Are we playing it tonight? This, we might be. Um... <laughs> Very high possibility of that. <laughs> the, um, <laughs> but with Asgard, yeah, I didn't. I'm usually a bit of a, a length Nazi when it comes to films as well, and I, um, I didn't feel it with this either. I was just completely sucked in. I think it's been a lot of there's been a lot of unkind reviews for this film, and I think it's that thing. It's like when somebody starts batting at a certain average, they just keep expecting them to top that and it's like I just feel like he's hit a groove where he does a certain thing brilliantly and he's just taking that show on the road. I was moved to come because I saw this on its first night mm. Thursday night its first night of opening and no one in there and I was moved to go out and tell the staff that were sweeping the floor that it was great and then tell people out the front <laughs> that it was great so really? you know, <laughs> that's yes. great. You were that crazy woman. <laughs> I was going, by myself was great. at 12 o'clock at night. <laughs> you got to see everybody knows <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah no i i completely agree i i, I really really love this film. yeah i did too and it's great um everybody knows is screening now at good independent cinemas listen to your friend emma westwood <laughs> the crazy at midnight woman. <laughs> telling you on the street to go and watch it three triple ah. Oh. 
our final film for the evening is Reflections in the Dust. From fiercely independent Australian filmmaker Luke Sullivan comes a tale set in a barren, swampy marshland, somewhere undefined but utterly desolate and shot in monochrome tones, where a collective of outsiders dwell. Chief among them is an angry, paranoid, possibly schizophrenic man known only as the Clown, because his face is painted that way, uh, played by Robin Royce Query, who lives with his daughter Freckles, played by physical theatre performer and former Paralympian swimmer Sarah Hubolt, who he curses and abuses both physically and sexually. A couple of other characters flit in and out of our focus, like another clown-like man named Bingo, who shows interest in Freckles, despite being terrified of her father, and a mysterious woman who keeps popping in to force-feed both the clown and Freckles' deepest insecurities. Freckles may share some of her father's mental illness, but she also craves happiness and a freedom he isn't willing to give. All of this is intercut with direct-to-camera interviews with the clown and Freckles, who seem to be responding, sometimes in character, sometimes not, to an unseen interviewer, the director Luke Sullivan, asking various philosophical questions. Sally, did you find anything to reflect upon in this film, or did you find it one big miserable circus? Um... So that's a difficult question, Paul. <laughs> I kind of put you on the spot. I know I? you have. There were um, I, the performances in this film. I thought were excellent from both um, Robin Royce. How do you pronounce his query? Query, who played the clown, and Sarah Holbrook, who played Freckles. I thought that they were both really wonderful, and there were lots of things in this film that I felt looked really beautiful as well. So the clown clearly had clown makeup on that filmed in the monochrome, I thought came off as being really exquisite looking a lot of the time. So this is definitely 100% experimental cinema. Um, This Friday that has just been, I had the pleasure and I know that Paul did as well as watching many Kenneth Anger shorts at the Astor theater. The magic lantern cycle. Magic lantern cycle, which of course is excellent experimental cinema as well so i come from watching you know this sort of pioneer and experimental cinema to watching reflections in the dust and there was something with this that didn't just gel for me i thought the performances were great but there was something i felt very lacking um so watching these two things side by side this kenneth anger you know pioneer and experimental cinema and then reflections in the dusk there was something i felt very lacking in the narrative here that just didn't come through um, when we look at something like Kenneth Anger where there's no dialogue but it's still just so excellent to watch and, you know, it's so memorable. And this that had all these elements that could have made, made it great, it just, yeah, it felt very lacking for me. These performances, like I said, were outstanding but it still, it, it just didn't, it didn't communicate well for me. Well, Kenneth Anger's got a sense of humour. Em, what did you <laughs> yeah, think of this? It's very funny. Yeah, I don't think there was a lot of humour in this film, let's just say. It's fairly dour. But, um, yeah, the the idea of narrative, it's an interesting one because experimental cin- cinema can or cannot have narrative. Uh, I think that this shows does show that how important a narrative structure is or some form of normality or something that we can we can gauge from a barometer mm. let's say to work from because when i read i watched this and then i read the synopsis afterwards that t- talked about it being a, a, essentially a comment about domestic violence which strangely i didn't get when yeah. i watched it which was a really bizarre thing because once i read that 
I went, of course, I can see that now, mm. but I didn't get it as an isolated viewer and I think that is a problem. Mm. Huge problem. We yeah. spoke about this last night and you mentioned that to me and I said I didn't get that either. Mm. So I think that there is some problem if there is a, an overt message that a film is trying to communicate where if you need to read a synopsis to get that, that's yeah, know, that's, it, it that's needs to good. be hmm. that's clear. not good. Yeah. Uh, I think that there was some really nice thematic stuff going on. I like the 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 clown metaphor that's played out because the clown is the duality of the clown. Oh my god, that just goes right through performing arts history. This whole Pagliacci or even Smokey Robinson and the Miracles, Tears of a Clown. This idea of the happy face on the outside and what it really you know, what it what it's really about. It was meant to be a dystopian setting of which had no context. That was kind of frustrating. I would have liked... It didn't have to be fully explained, but I wanted to know where I was. I didn't really f- have a feeling of where I was. Yeah, I, feel, I felt that too. I'm a very big champion of experimental cinema. I really like it. But we watch film because you want a story. Yeah. And I've... Mm. Yeah, that was the a big story. Lacking. Story is a really interesting... Mm concept because it can be on so many levels but uh yeah there was just something that just wasn't working here sarah hubolt though really fascinated me i mean as a performer i couldn't and she's a you know unusual i'll be honest unusual looking woman Mm. um and i actually felt compelled to look up more about her because I'd never heard about her before and she has this thing called Hallerman-Strife syndrome so it's this very rare congenital issue which affects the way she she looks but as a performer she's um as you said in the um intro Paralympian circus she's a circus performer and she calls herself a freak show Mm. right and she's been actually um attacked for that because she uh saying how can you call yourself that but she's talked a lot about how the the old freak shows were the place where people of disability at the time were welcomed and i really enjoyed i watched a ted talk i was i've actually become a bit of a groupie of you you went down a sarah hubolt uh rabbit hole i did i did i went through and and she's she's amazing she is pretty yeah, amazing person. she's really amazing. So I wouldn't be surprised if we hear more about her. I didn't get a sense in the film that she was um, she was sight impaired. She's actually, no, no, that was what shocked me when I heard she's legally blind. It's like yeah. holy crap! I would not have guessed that from the film. Yeah, exactly. Like she's completely seems. But even her character in the film, mm. from the synopsis, says yeah. that she, which is I did not impaired. get from the film either, which might problematic. Be an issue. Yes. Yeah, I okay. I, I watched this and I have a, I don't have a problem with films having very little story. I don't have a problem, you know, I'm not a, everything has to, you know, be a save the cat three act structure. I'm fine with, I'm fine with, you know, just following a character through a world. But that world has to be defined in some way. It has to, has to have a context. It has to feel like we have a strong sense of place and this is just like set in the most miserable of nowheres with the most miserable of characters like for a while it took me to work out what their relationship was yeah, yeah I, I didn't understand that for I, I think probably about 20 minutes into it yeah as well, and then so, and then suddenly you're like oh this is Australian movie, the movie. It's like her incest, check. Miserabilism, check. Uh, yeah, family, it's all, like, like just all Dystopia. That, yeah, check. <laughs> um, and people are saying the C-bomb really loudly, check. Um, and it's just, it's that thing where it's like, I, I just need, and I need variation, you know? It's like, you look at someone like, like Lars von Trier, and 
to be honest, I did a little research too, and, and you, like Luke Sullivan is is a guy who's not without talent. Um, mm. This film is is I haven't seen his previous feature. I this isn't his debut. No, this is his second yeah. film. Um, uh, You're not thinking straight. I think was mm. the title of his first film, but the, he, he definitely had, great title <laughs> has, yeah. has talent. But you know, this film's really well put together. I think the the star of this movie, uh, as well as Sarah Hallbolt, is um, cinematographer Ryan Barry Cotter. I mean, mm. the film looks gorgeous. Yeah, it yes, does. it does. Very beautiful. Um, there's some good sound work as well. But he's very much Luke Sullivan is very much a self styled provocateur. There's a photo of him from Carlo Viveri standing in front of a, the jury and a picture of Tim Robbins sticking his finger up at the camera. <laughs> Which which makes <laughs> really? me and I look at this film and this film is just one volume all the way through. It's just life is shit, life is shit, life is shit, life is shit. And I was like, well, what else you got? Yeah. Mm. Are you gonna tell me something else, or is it just this for seventy minutes? Because if it's just this, I'm checking out. And it's a shame because he gets really beautiful performances out of those leads. And yeah, they were both mm. incredible. And mm. you know, and it's like that thing where it's like he's like he feels like a kid who's found a hammer in the grass and knows that people yell ow when he hits him with it so now he's just going to hit people with it for a while and it's like i i just want i you know and and this whole background about oh it's about domestic violence and something it's like yeah it's, it's also kind of immature i'm sorry it's it's just you know and the questions like i don't know what the interview section was about i don't know why no i don't know why they were in there just seemed to i don't mm. know if you wanted to add color to the film and literally yes because they were color sequences <laughs> yeah there's blue <laughs> and red behind and just like like, you know, is blood thick in the water? Like, I just, like, I don't, like, I, it's like, what? You, you gotta tell me something here. And I just feel like the film is really poorly communicates the point that it's trying to get across, which is a shame. Because, like I said, these people aren't without talent. There's a lot of good intentions here. And mm. I really wanted to go with it. And it has some striking imagery. But in the end, I just, I just couldn't. It just felt like I, you know, you, well, if you watch someone, you know, eat, shit and then vomit it up for 90 minutes 70 minutes like is that cinema <laughs> experimental, experimental cinema, cinema. Yeah. avant-garde oh. cinema paul um does anyone know where any of this was filmed like what locales was it melbourne or i'm the slightest clue i believe he's from new south wales okay okay um because yeah i was trying to figure that out when i was watching it if it was I tell you what, or... it was very low budget. The costumes were came from Vinnie's and Lifeline. Oh wow! That was in the credits, just to give you an idea of how low budget. And I've it got was. again, I am a micro budget independent filmmaker myself, and mm. I I totally I totally get all that. I love the fact that this was filmed with such a small crew and such a, a tiny budget. But in the end, it, it's I, yeah, I I really wanted to find something in it worth championing beyond the performances and the visual style and the sound work and i just i couldn't no. i'm sorry uh, it's yeah it's it just i just found it really disappointing if you're still interested <laughs> reflections in the dust is screening now at select independent cinemas on tonight's show we discussed <laughs> the house that jack built everybody knows and reflections in the dust which are screening at all good independent cinemas right now you can listen back to the show within half an hour on Triple R On Demand or check out the song, the listing of the songs we played and the films we reviewed on the Triple uh, R website on the Plato's Cave page. That's triplr.org.au. Uh, you can subscribe to the Triple R, uh, 
Plato's Cave podcast via iTunes or wherever you find your favourite podcasts. Next week, the cave, the cave will be digging into Hotel Mumbai, Knife and Heart, and Australian artist Joan Ross's virtual reality work, Did You Ask the River, which is available at the Australian Centre of the Moving Image right now. Sadly, I won't be joining that discussion as I'll be away for the next six weeks making my second feature film. Uh, We're going to review it when you get back. We are. We're so going to review it. Let's <laughs> totally review it. <laughs> In the meantime, Cerise Howard will return, as well as a few other surprise-friendly voices, so stay tuned. A huge thank you to Faith Everard for editing the Plato's Cave podcast and to Carl Chapman for panelling the show. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.